Well, hello, everybody. Uh, my name's Luke, and I'm going to be reading Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 23. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, dear, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know, that it is, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all, thing, all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of, of giving and receiving, except you only. For even, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from um, Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with um, who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, be with your spirit. Amen. Thanks, Luke. Well, I'm about 10 years old with my mum and my dad and my younger sister and little brother, and we're by a river somewhere. I have this snapshot memory that often, for some reason, seems to come to the front of my mind. And this memory is only a moment, really. I don't remember where we were. We were on holidays somewhere, I think. And we'd stopped by a river to eat lunch that we got from a bakery nearby. I remember there were swans on the river and there was a, an old cannon or maybe a war memorial next to the water. And we were on a picnic blanket 
And Dad and I decided to race back and forth to the cannon. So we ran back and forth across the grass while Mum and the other kids sat and watched us and, and laughed. And there was this older couple sitting on a bench nearby watching uh, and laughing too as they saw our family life. I'm not really sure why that memory has lingered with me for so long. That's it. But I think maybe it stayed with me as a moment of, of enduring and deep peace. It's not a memory like a, like a kind of ray of sunshine through a dark childhood. I had a wonderful childhood, lots of great memories. But for whatever reason, I've hung on to that moment of peace. Do you have memories like that? I think it's something we all long for, that peace, what the Bible calls, calls shalom, right? A sense of everything being the way it should be. For me, sometimes that little snapshot memory comes to my mind when I'm sad about things that have changed in my family since then. And I long for something that once was, but now isn't anymore. We all long for peace, for that experience of everything being the way it should be. But what we experience day to day is sometimes, usually, pretty far from that, right? Sitting by a river on holiday is, is not our normal day-to-day -day experience. Though we long for peace, we experience stress, loneliness, busyness, conflict. Ukrainians long for peace, but they experience war. Conflicted families long for peace, but they experience heartache. Our minds long for peace, but sometimes experience depression, anxiety, fear. What are the circumstances or the experiences that might oppose peace in your life? Well, here's a circumstance that's, that's opposed peace in lots of our lives. Today's a bit of an unwelcome milestone for us. Uh, today is two years to the Sunday since we did our first online service at St. Jude's. So happy two-year COVID birthday, St. Jude's. It's a birthday I had never thought we would have to celebrate. One of the things that's been so difficult about that two years, right, is the way that the peace, that the, the connectedness, the rightness of our life has been disrupted and disordered. The different parts of our lives in so many ways have moved out of place out of right relationship with each other. They've either become disconnected or too overlapping. And so our, our peace has been compromised, been pulled down by things being in wrong relationship in our lives. But the life that God invites us to is a life of peace. And it's a life of peace that's deeper than, that, that undergirds, that goes below even those kind of experiences that might disrupt or pull down our peace. The vision here for our Christian lives, for a life brought about by the Holy Spirit, is a vision for peace. The deep, the transforming truth of Philippians 4 is that in Jesus, you can have peace which cannot be shaken by circumstances. In Jesus, 
We can know peace, which is just as real in the shadows as it is in the sunshine. Peace, which is just as sustaining in the desert as sitting on the grass by a river. In the language of the passage, peace which transcends all understanding. God desires us to know this peace. He offers us this peace. He works in us this peace. And we're going to focus as we explore the peace that God offers us on verses 1 to 9 of this chapter tonight. When we come to the final chapters in the New Testament epistles, there's, there's often a collection of kind of final encouragements and exhortations because they're, they're letters written from one person to another person or to a community, right? There's often lots of things they're trying to get in before they reach the end of their letter. There's sometimes personal greetings and requests, things like that. And so we have to figure out what do we do with these last chapter kind of passages? Do we focus on a particular section? Do we, uh, do we try and cover everything that's in that chapter? Do we do some kind of gymnastics and try and make it into three perfectly alliterated points? T- tonight, what we're going to do is, is focus in on verses one to nine and particularly draw out the vision for the Christian life that Paul wants to leave with his readers. And so God wants to leave with us as we draw to the end of this letter of Philippians that we've been working through together. It's a vision for Peace. And what I love about this passage is how Paul addresses the Christian life that the person, you and me, as a wonderfully integrated whole, speaking to our outside lives, our our relationships with one another, and to our inside lives, our hearts, our minds. And so we're going to consider each of those parts of, of who we are, of our lives, and draw out the peace which God offers us. It's God's heart that we would know peace. And first, we see clearly from these verses that God desires our peace with one another. Which makes sense, right? Because that's what the gospel is. It's a message of peace with one another. Peace between us and God, the restoration of relationship which we broke and God fixed. And it's, it's the message of the way to true peace in relationship with one another as we're drawn into the life of God's family, adopted into a community that's marked by peace. Have a look in your, the new sheet if you've got it there, or in your Bible if you've got it there, at verse one with me. See what Paul says. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in this way, dear friends. Can you see the kind of relationship there that's on display between Paul and this church? This deep affection that he feels for them. It's a lot like how Paul opened his letter back in Philippians 1 that we looked at, whatever it was, seven or eight weeks ago. Maybe you remember some of this language. Paul said, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. I have you in my heart. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. These Christians are, to Paul, brothers and sisters in the sense that they're adopted into the same family of God, but even even beyond that in their experience, right? He longs for them. He rejoices in them. He's homesick to be with them. Through the gospel, God gives us unity with one another, and it's expressed in relationships of deep affection, 
and unity. I wonder, is that your experience of church? Is that your experience of uni church? Lots of us are pretty new here, especially at this time of year. Maybe that's something that we long for, that, that we're building towards, but still yet to feel that sense of deep relationship with those around us. Well, here, the call here to nurture those relationships with our brothers and sisters here. Because it's, it's our relationships, right? It's those lives that we have invested in and the people that we've changed, the people we've pointed to Christ, the wounds that we've healed, which really matter to God. Our relationships are the legacy and the fruit of our lives. Look at what Paul says of these Christians that he loves in verse one. He says, you are my joy and my crown. My joy and crown. They're the joy of his life and they're his crown. That, that word indicates like the wreath that an athlete would wear in victory, like a medal around their neck. The great prize of Paul's life and ministry are those lives that he's invested in. Our culture here in Melbourne is a pretty individualized culture. We're not really conditioned to see ourselves fundamentally through this lens of our relationships with one another. I see this in, in my kind of friendships at the moment in a number of people having small weddings, just two people and a celebrant, or maybe their parents or, or a couple of close friends. Not necessarily a bad thing, but weddings that are no longer seen as, as the bringing together of two whole families and communities, but rather a focus on one individual and another individual coming together. Or we might point to any number of other things, like the rise of single-person households, uh, what's been called the loneliness epidemic, as rates of, of loneliness rise, or the one in three Australians who don't feel part of a group of friends. The list goes on and on towards individuals and away from communities. But if you're a Christian, that is not our story. If you're a Christian, you're enmeshed, you're embedded in relationships. One day you will stand before God in heaven and you won't just give an account for what you did when you were alone, but how your life impacted those around you. You'll answer for how you loved, how you cared, how you forgave and sought forgiveness, how you served, how you reconciled, how you worked together with others for the gospel. Our relationships matter to God and he desires peace. And, and he desires peace through the conflicts, the differences, the disagreements of our lives. Because, of course, life involves those things. Life involves conflict and disagreement and sometimes real strain on relationships. That's in view here with Euodia and Syntyche, these two godly servants of the gospel who are in conflict in the church in Philippi. And so Paul encourages these two women to unity as he focuses on their relationship rather than on whatever the issue is that they're fighting about. He doesn't even name it. And he invites the community around them to support them as they reconcile together. 
Right? Like, like this church here, we will always have differences. We'll always have misunderstandings. We'll always have clumsy interactions. Maybe you can think of people in this congregation who you've shared that kind of experience with. Peace doesn't come through just agreeing on everything, but it does come in the language of the passage through having the same mind, having a deep shared truth and focus on Jesus and his gospel and its call. You might have heard of Billy Graham, who's a great evangelist from the the middle of the 20th century. And his wife, uh, Ruth, she was once asked whether she agreed with everything her husband taught. Uh, She was a very witty woman. I really like her reply. She replied that if it was her opinion that if two people agreed on everything, then one of them wasn't really necessary. I like that. Peace doesn't just come through agreeing on everything, being identical to each other, but it does come through having the same mind in the Lord, the same focus, the same vision, the same orientation towards Jesus and desire for the spread of his gospel. Peace with one another is what God desires for us. And God desires peace not just in our outside life, in our life together, but in our inside lives, peace within ourselves as well. It's one of the things that's so wonderful in this passage is the integrated vision of who people are. Our inside lives need peace. And our inside lives are connected, integrated wholes. This is medically true, right, isn't it? You tell the physio that your shoulder's sore just here and so they go to work on your lower back. Or what's going on in your gut affects what's happening in your mind. Or when your mental health is shot, some of the first things that your psychologist will help you to do is to eat well and exercise and get more sleep. Right, we're we're integrated beings. And our passage turns from our relationships towards our inner lives. Read with me from verse four. Have a look in front of you there. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are difficult verses sometimes for people to wrap their heads around. But let's just think about what's God calling us to do here? Have a look at those verses in front of you. If you're a note taker, maybe highlight the words and phrases which are the, the imperatives, the instructions, the commands, the things that Paul's calling us to. It says, rejoice. And then again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Do not be anxious. Present your requests to God. I think Paul is calling the Philippians and God's calling us to a whole orientation of our hearts in these verses, a whole integrated life of peace. Lots of people, particularly in these verses, might struggle with verse six there, right? The instruction, do not be anxious. 
especially those of us who, who battle with clinical anxiety. These might be hard words or confusing words to read. So what are these words? Is this a bit like if I was to tell my wife, Ronnie, in the middle of a robust conversation that we were having to calm down? Words which actually achieve quite the opposite of what you might mean them to. I don't think that's what's going on here. We don't need to read the phrase, do not be anxious, and feel anxious. Scripture isn't naive or unsympathetic about the experience of anxiety or other mental health afflictions that we might experience. In fact, I think a biblical worldview gives us great explanatory power to understand those experiences that we have in our mental health. As we live in a fallen world, that affects every part of our integrated selves, our relationships and our bodies and our souls and our minds. In fact, the word here for anxious is one that's used in other places in the New Testament as well that can be helpful for us to understand it. It's used in the story of Mary and Martha. That story might be familiar to you, right? As, as Martha rushes around trying to get the house ready when Jesus comes to visit, while Mary just sits at Jesus' feet listening to him. And Jesus lovingly calls Martha away from her anxiety to instead listen to his words. The same word is also used or translated as concern, when concern is the totally right response in a situation. Christians are to be concerned, brackets, anxious, for the welfare and the growth of other believers, the Bible teaches us. Sometimes God wants us to be anxious in the right sense. But for some of us, part of our experience of a fallen world is that our bodies and our minds undergo chemical imbalances which give rise to a different type of anxiety. But it can be hard to know, right? It can be hard to know how the different parts of who we are are at play when we have that experience. Am I feeling anxious because my body is chemically overreacting to a perceived threat? Or am I feeling anxious because I'm low on faith? Or am I feeling anxious because I've let sin take control? Those are not easy and, and quite challenging questions to answer. Well, I think as Paul urges Christians here to not be anxious, it, it's certainly not a command which dismisses or downplays the experience of anxiety that some of us have. It doesn't reduce the complexity of anxiety, not at all. I read this as quite the opposite, as he urges us to prayer, to desperately throw ourselves on God when anxiety threatens. Imagine you're drowning and the lifeguard grabs your arm to pull you into the boat and says, don't worry, I've got you. Is he expecting your worry to kind of disappear, to be lifted off you, to enter some kind of serene state as you leave behind your concerns about the water? No, of course not. He's, he's comforting you. He's assuring you that he will not let go. And God says to us, do not be anxious. I've got you. I won't let go. If you experience anxiety, that's not sinful in itself. Your first reaction doesn't need to be, oh, I'm disobeying Philippians 4, 6. 
Rather, the invitation here is to respond to that experience by bringing yourself to God, by crying out to him in prayer, in every situation with thanksgiving. Cry out to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. We can stand firm, as the passage says, in the gospel, the gospel of peace in our relationships, in our minds, uh, in our hearts, and peace in our minds. So let's think finally then about peace in our minds. Mark Twain, who was an old writer, he wrote this. What a little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is in his head and known to none but himself. All day long, the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts, not those other things, are his history. The life of our minds matters. Well, the philosopher John Locke He wrote, temples have their sacred images and what influence they always had over a great part of humanity. But in truth, the ideas and images in people's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. The life of our minds matters. It matters to God and in God we can find peace in our minds. Have a look from verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Mark Twain is so right, isn't he, that so much of our life happens inside our heads. So let me ask you, what what kind of life happens inside your head? Jesus, of course, even better than Mark Twain or John Locke, said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. It's from our inner life that our outer life flows. Or cast your mind to that verse, Romans 12, 2, which we've been turning to often in our life recently. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Your mind. Do you see that the place of our mind in God's transforming work of us if our inner life, if the life of our minds is far from God, then our, our words, our behaviours, our actions, our decisions will be far from God. The life of our minds is where the rest of our life is born. Evil can come from our minds, Jesus says. And likewise, peace and joy and love and good things can come from our minds and flow out in our lives. So, let me ask you again, what is your mind filled with what does the life of your mind look like 
What neural pathways are you laying to shape the rest of your life? I love the picture in these verses of filling our minds with goodness. If we fill our minds with all that's true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, what will that look like as it flows from inside us to outside us into our words and our actions? But if an underground spring of water is salty, then the stream will be salty. But if the underground spring is fresh, the stream that flows out will be fresh. Just to, to clarify as well, this isn't like a kind of unfun, buzzkill, holier-than-thou kind of vision of what it means to be a Christian who just watches Christian movies and listens to Hillsong. Right? It's, not, it's not quite that simple. But it is a call to be in the world, yet not of the world. To be in our culture, but not shaped by our culture. Let me, let me share another childhood memory. When I was about 15, I decided one night to watch a, a horror movie, one of the Saw movies. So those movies were just new at that time and all my mates had been watching them and talking about them and I wanted to be part of that, to participate in that. And so I decided to watch one of these movies that were basically long sequences of, of torture. And even by the end of that movie, I was feeling deep regret for filling my mind with that. I, I, felt, I felt dirty. I wished that I hadn't watched it. I still have, like that good memory, I still have a couple of particularly graphic scenes from that film that linger in my mind 15 years later. I still regret watching that film. Right, now, that, that doesn't mean that now all I watch is The Chosen and VeggieTales, right? <laughs> my, my favorite show now is about zombies. But that experience that I had quite powerfully showed me through watching that movie 15 years ago, the power of what we fill our minds with. If you're consuming TV, movies, if you're playing games, if you're listening to stuff that you know is polluting your mind and taking you further from God, then lay it down at Jesus' feet and walk away. You don't need them. They don't have to be part of your life. They're not good for you. But they're slowing you down as you walk after Jesus. So just let them go. I regretted watching that movie, but I'm never going to regret. You're never going to regret letting go of unhealthy content for the sake of Jesus, right? Do you remember that childhood scientific experiment? Maybe you did this at some point in school where you put a white flower in a glass of water and then you, you put food dye in the water and you come back the next day and you observe how the dye's been drawn up into the flower and the petals are now a different color. That's what happens to us when we feed our minds with good or bad. It's drawn up into our life and shows itself. It overflows in our lives as good or as bad. Another way, maybe a more subtle way, that we shape what we think about as well is the, the social media that we consume, right? Maybe you remember when we dived into this a bit late last year, 
exploring the, the worldly pattern of distraction, especially in social media, and the transformed life of prayer. If you want to live out this call of Philippians 4 to a mind of peace, there's not many things you could do better than to control your social media and not let it control you. Get away from it sometimes. Get on top of the addiction. Go for a walk and leave your phone at home. The world won't fall apart. And pay attention to the people and the pages, the things that you follow or subscribe to. If you want to fill your mind with things that are true and noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, then fill your feed with those things. Don't fill your feed with bad content. Now, again, that, that doesn't just mean I only follow pages that post Bible verses every day or something like that. But, but look for content that, that grows your mind, that encourages you, that, that challenges you, that helps you love other people better, that reminds you of God's nearness, that helps you live for him in the world, rather than just kind of meaningless, cheap, trash content that just pollutes and clutters and dulls your mind. Control your content. Don't let it control you if you want a mind of peace. What might we do to participate in this renewing of our minds? If you see that the life of your mind isn't growing a sense of peace in Christ, what could you do? Well, here's two quick things to finish. One would be to think about what you think about, or to intentionally assess your thought life. Because we don't often do that, right? Our thoughts just kind of happen. We don't really think about them. But why not take a day and, and try to deliberately observe what happens in your mind throughout that day? You could do something like write Philippians 4.8 on the back of your hand and then every time you notice it, think about what's going through your mind at that time. Or make a little list of the games that you play and the shows that you watch and the podcasts that you listen to and then assess which of these are helping me come closer to God and which are taking me further away from God. Or a second idea is to look to the role models in your life and to model yourself on them or to, to ask them about the life of their minds. This is what Paul is calling us to in verse 9, right? He says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. We can look to those people in our lives who model the Christian life to us and we can try to be like them in what we fill our minds with and watch as it overflows into the rest of who we are. Could you do either of those things this week to intentionally nurture the life of your mind and to seek the peace which God calls us to? There's a, a Native American, a Cherokee folk story of a grandfather telling his grandson about the two wolves fighting inside him. And when the grandson asks which wolf wins, the grandfather replies, the one I choose to feed. Feed your mind, feed your heart, feed your relationships with peace. And from them, peace will flow. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why don't I pray that it would? Would you pray with me? God of peace, help us to know your peace. Bring peace in our 
outer lives, our lives together, and peace in our inner lives. Make us people from whom peace overflows into the world. Make us people for whom peace runs deeper than everything we experience. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.